To everyone tuning in, welcome. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. You're listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, the program that promotes, highlights, and uplifts the social work profession. This podcast aims to educate the general public through vital contributions professional social workers make in every aspect of society every day. Today, my guest is Mr. Frank Pomada, and Mr. Frank Pomada has been gracious enough to agreed to come on the air and talk about something very special near and dear to him and also part of his own special journey. Welcome to the show, Frank. Thank you, Silas. I appreciate you allowing me this venue to talk about my uh, personal uh, crusade, so to speak. Uh, I'm calling it From Denial to Discussion, and the topic really is about mental illness and destigmatizing it and promoting well-being. That's a great, great topic to, to kick this podcast off. And it's, it's very interesting, you know, that you've chosen to, to, to speak on that issue. Um, there's been so much in the news lately about uh, mental health and the stigma surrounding it. You know, I'm you know currently associated with the Association of Mental Health and Wellness as a board member. And a big part of what we're doing is trying to break down the stigma so that people who are struggling with mental health issues don't feel that they have to struggle and suffer in silence as uh, based on what you were telling me um, you've done for many years. So uh, my first question to you, uh, growing up, when did you first perceive that there might be something going on in your mind that concerned you? That was from a very early time, Silas. Um, I had a grandmother who had, and we knew this, manic depression, as it was called. Then we call it bipolar disease this time. She had it rather serious, and it was rather scary to me. And my father had it to a lesser degree. And I began perceiving ups and downs in my moods on a relatively early age, I would say, you know, uh, around 10 or 12. And then over time, things began to progress. And I have to say, it frightened me. I, I, I kept myself in the shadows, so to speak, because of the stigma, did not seek help. And so uh, that's that's what brought me here uh, today. Can you be a little more specific? Did you get anxious around people? Were you not comfortable talking with uh, people at school? Did you feel like a lot of panic attacks? You know, what was it in, in general? Good question. Good question. To be more concrete, if you will, my moods could be very fluid. Um, I had a definite perception sometimes, uh, particularly when a downward mood would come, of almost like a black curtain descending uh, in my mind. Um, I could go to bed on one day being perfectly fine and normal and find myself like a cat with its claws embedded in the ceiling the next day or so down at the dumps that I did not want to or didn't feel capable of getting out of bed. So I would just stay in bed. And uh, those are the main symptoms. I also felt isolated from my peers at times, things of that nature. It's, it's very interesting that you said that. It's very important that you bring that point out because sometimes when people are experiencing these things, they know that it's not normal, but they just don't know who to talk to or they're very afraid to talk about it for fear of the stigma. So what is it about the stigma? That's a really good question, Silas, in that stigma affects so many different areas of our society, uh, mental wellness and illness being just one of them. I want to credit a gentleman who inspired me in my own personal journey, Mr. Mike Venny. I actually just finished 
reading a book by him, Transforming Stigma. And in it, he talks about the cycle of stigma, and a lot of it revolves around silence. I would equate my own beginning to overcome the stigma by gathering up the courage to speak and to admit to myself first that I had a mental illness and then seek help, but then to go further with the stigma to speak out publicly to uh, the topic both in writing, uh, on social media, and now in this particular venue by getting the awareness out there for people to know that there's peers that might be right next to them at work. I actually had a colleague who said to me, gee, we sat next to each other for five years and I never knew anything about this. Of course, my response was, remember all those days when I was out? Those were the bad days. I was hiding in the shadows. Uh, and I have decided to come out. And, and it is a little bit akin to coming out as it's used in the gay community uh, because I don't want to go back in the shadows and uh, anymore. I'm out there, out and proud. That's great because uh, you coming out is going to do a lot for uh, many other people who are experiencing and have experienced the exact same thing that you're experiencing. Um, your courage um, is commendable simply for the fact that, in my opinion, it's going to free and liberate so many other people to come out of the shadows as you did, seek the help and know that it doesn't make them a less of a person. And I think a big part of the stigma based on, you know, some of the readings that I've done and some of the conversations and conferences I've been to, people feel that they are less than everybody else. If they admit that they go to therapy or they have a, uh, uh, a mental health issue or they're taking medication, so forth and so on, or they have good days and bad days. Because frankly speaking, um, Frank, no pun intended, we all have our good days and bad days. It's just that to develop the ability to be able to handle the bad days and know that this too shall pass, I think is a big hurdle that many people suffering from mental illness, they never get to that point. So going from being in the shadows to being able to come out of the shadows and feel comfortable about it to actually handling the symptomatic times that you may be experiencing. I think that would be good for our listeners to hear about how you deal with it. Well, a big part of it is looking in the mirror and a dose of humility. I think you really hit the nail on the head on a number of points that you made uh, in the intro to this. Um, first, one has to admit it to oneself. Then one has to gather up the courage, if you will. Uh, social change does not come easily. I mean, we have a lot of different social movements in our country, and this is but one, and part of it is speaking out, advocacy. We do not have parity here in our country yet when it comes to physical and mental health. They're treated differently. Therefore, you as a person living with mental challenges, mental illness, may feel as if I'm going to be treated differently. There's a fear involved in that. Uh, I have to open bottles of pills in the morning and take them. I euphemistically call them my vitamins. It's still hard for me. Now, I don't know if that's male pride or what. I, I do comply. I do do it. I know it helps me, but it is still difficult on some level, and I think that that is, revolves from, devolves from the, the stereotypes. I do go to therapy. 
I'm journaling something and I was afraid to do for so many years. Uh, God forbid somebody would read those thoughts. Uh, support of family and friends is critical too. You hit on a very, very serious um, uh, segment of points. One of the things that you mentioned is about uh, the parody. And uh, and I'm sure you, you were aware that uh, just in the last, I would say, three weeks to a month, uh, Governor Cuomo and the New York State Legislature just passed some legislation that said that there's the Mental Health um, Parity Act. And um, that in and of itself says that even though the, the law was passed that the insurance companies had to pay for mental health and substance abuse treatment, at the same rate or with the same willingness as they did for physical health issues, there was some concerns and there was evidence pointing to the fact that they were not indeed doing that. And so New York state legislature, which, uh, and ESW, which I'm a member of, you know, uh, fought and pushed very hard to get the mental health parity act passed. And that means that they're now tracking how much insurance companies are spending to help people who are, diagnosed with a mental illness or substance abuse, substance use disorder, and that they have to be funding their treatment at the same level, which I think is a huge victory uh, in our um, uh, struggle to get this whole mental health thing out front and being taken care of because if someone has cancer or or, or, or obesity or heart disease, we don't uh, shun them and we don't put them away in a corner and say we don't want to talk about them. And so I'm, I'm glad that, you know, individuals like yourself uh, are coming out and that the New York state legislature has taken that bold step to make sure that they uh, hold the insurance companies speak to the fire. First, let me credit uh, Silas, uh, the NASW, for their advocacy the New York State Legislature for their taking this up as a serious issue that does need addressing. Uh, a related ele element to that is the under uh, supply of people needing help. I had to call a minimum of 26. I remember this very clearly. I had a crisis at work. I was sent home. I saw EAC, uh, assistance, uh, uh, employee assistance uh, program, EAP that is, uh, and I was referred 26 calls before I could find a therapist. The other piece of that is with the legislation, and again, I want to compare this to other social movements. I would call that legislation kind of like our Brown versus Board of Ed. We passed the laws, but the, there's a lag in between the legislative um, agenda and changes and then the de facto the practices in the community and so there's some catch-up that will a time that will be needed for that catch-up very 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 true and again you know with you know looking at the you know the whole political landscape you know uh, legislative moves can um be undertaken and, and laws and bills can be passed but there still needs to be a watchdog effort so that the laws that are passed are actually enacted and acted upon because that's what is the issue in many instances is that yes they pass the laws and the laws are on the books but it still takes people that are compassionate with justice-based efforts to make sure that the people get the help that they need and they're not made to feel that they're less than and i think that coming out of the shadows is one of the best things that could ever happen um 
Michelle Williams, uh, uh, formerly of Destiny's Child, was a keynote speaker back in October. Um, she struggled with mental illness and she said for years she was on the grand stage with Beyonce and all over the world touring and getting these seven figure contracts. And she knew that there was something wrong and that she needed to have help. And she said, it's OK. It's OK. If you need the help, go get it. And a lot of people, a lot of the uh, uh, recording artists, uh, professional athletes, everybody's coming out and saying, hey, look, me too. And it's almost like not to borrow a tag from, you know, the women's movement, but people are saying you're not by yourself. And I think that everybody coming out, the common everyday lay person, persons like yourself, uh, celebrities, entertainers, I think this will make it a much easier road to travel for those who are still in the shadows. So, um that being the case, uh, tell us a little bit about who you would identify as some of your heroes and heroines or inspirations in your life as it relates to your decision to do what you've so uh, courageously decided to do. Thank you, Silas. Well, just quickly to backtrack on what you said before, before I answer that question was that I don't think we're stealing from the Me Too movement. I think there's an analogy in all social change movements and a, and a, and a similarity in the arcs of how change is affected in our society. So uh, I think you're you, you spot on. I happen to love the public service campaign that NAMI, National Alliance of Mental Illness, is doing called I Will Listen, and a number of celebrities are participating in that. Now to the question that you asked about heroes and folks in my life. Well, uh, I will credit first and foremost my parents, and in particular my mother who is still alive. My dad is unfortunately deceased now 20 years but my mom has been a steadfast supporter of me. Uh, when I was hospitalized for a week, voluntarily, I signed myself in. Truth be known, I knew that if I didn't do it voluntarily, they were going to sign me into the psychiatric unit of a hospital here on Long Island after a suicide attempt. Um, my mom, my sister, and my wife visited me every day. And there were other folks on that ward who did not have that. So they helped. Um, me coming out of the shadows on this public speaking aspect and being more public of it, though, I want to definitely credit this gentleman, Mike Vaney. Michael wrote this book, Transforming Stigma, which I alluded to before, which I just finished reading, very powerful book, and he challenged folks earlier this year, and I read this article and felt the call to respond to it and to be an authentic messenger, if you've heard that expression, on this topic, um, Michael goes around speaking uh, around the country, perhaps even internationally, on the topic of his own mental illness challenges. And I found him very inspiring. And um, I think that other people in other social movements, too. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King is a personal hero of mine. Uh, there's a woman here who is deputy commissioner of the Suffolk County Police Department, and I've had the privilege of knowing her, and she runs a very powerful group for ex-offenders to help them overcome their stigma and get on with their lives and change some of the old patterns. Her name is Risco Mention Lewis, wonderful woman, and so those are just some of the people who I would identify as heroes. All right, thank you for that. Um, what, what are some of your coping mechanisms, um, new behaviors and attitudes that you've adopted to manage your mental illness? Great question, and that you're right. There are habits and, and, and practices that need to be incorporated in one's life. Well, first and foremost is the therapy. 
I've been going to therapy on a semi-regular basis. Uh, I've been consistent with that. I found myself a good therapist after a long search. Uh, I happened to choose cognitive behavioral therapy. I felt that would be the most effective methodology for me and for my particular uh, bipolar uh, disorder diagnosis, and I have found it has been. I have a wonderful therapist, uh, uh, Hilary Parente is her name. I'll give her a shout-out and a thank you for her assistance. Journaling, to make myself more self-aware of what's going on with my ups and my downs and being able to better discern things. It took me a while to discern through this journaling that one of the manifestations of my illness was overspending, so I'm working on that. Wow. Better sleep hygiene. Exercise. I go to the gym regularly. I try to make it at least three times a week. I find walking too. Communing with nature is important. Just quietly sort of getting away from the noise, if you will, that we are inundated with in our society and stepping out. I'm privileged to have a, a, a small set of woods behind our apartment complex and I take walks with my wife there on a periodic basis and that's helpful. Walking, and then just talking with others, too. I'm, I'm starting to identify my personal tribe, if you will, as other people, mental wellness, uh, mental illness challenges, and uh, I'm beginning to meet with them more regularly, talk with them, and sort of form community, mutual sport. Thank you for that. For those listening out there, what do you think families, friends, and others can do to help someone who's in denial about their mental illness? That is a tough one, okay? And I was in denial for a long time. And there were people that were seeing signs, uh, maybe trying to sort of get me to address this. And it took me uh, three critical instances. I had three suicide attempts over the years. Um, honesty. Tell people about your observations. Don't prescribe. You should. That's a trigger. Uh, if somebody has to take medication, do not say the words if they're having a bad day. Oh, you must be off your meds. That is a definite trigger. Um, offering an ear, I think. That's where that whole NAMI, I will listen campaign comes in. Because I think just having friends and family in one's life who you can feel safe talking to. That, hey, you know, I'm going through something here. I had a couple of supportive bosses. I, I was very fearful about sharing this, but... In at least one or two instances, I had supervisors who I felt safe enough to talk to, and that was very powerful. Okay. So um, it seems that um, people who are dealing with someone who uh, may be in denial, uh, the support issue, uh, not labeling, and you know, labeling is a big part of the stigma, and that's why people don't uh, admit that they have an issue because then they become labeled. Uh, you know, the, the terminology, the words, the phrases that we use um, every day, uh, people hear something, um, it sticks with them. And, you know, that's been ever since in, in childhood. You know, you say something to a child enough and long enough. It's human nature that, you know, our, our, our brains become recording devices and we record that and we retain that. And then that becomes part of how we relate to our own reality. So, again, making sure that, you know, family members, you know, learn you know, what not to say. And I think, you know, organizations like uh, NAMI and, and uh, you know, SAMHSA, you know, Substance Abuse and Mental Health uh, Services Administration, I think they do a lot of great work 
in making sure that people understand that if someone has an issue that you've got to be careful what you say to them because it sticks and labels are very hard to get rid of once they uh, are applied to a person. Yeah, I completely agree. And I would jump in there. There are resources online. I, I have a mental wellness board on Pinterest. And one of them is what to say and what not to say to a person with mental illness. But I also want to expand on something is that it's not just the private conversations. There's also the public discourse. I was driving home recently, and I think this is important to share this, uh, this point because other people may have been similarly affected. Um, our president was talking on the radio. I was listening to National Public Radio, and it was about one of the recent mass shootings. And often the issue of mental illness is used uh, as a uh, uh, um, excuse for these things and a, and a distraction, in my, in my opinion, uh, from looking at the issue of gun control and how we treat guns and whatnot and the availability of guns in this society. That being said, one of the things that our president was advocating for was he said we need to bring back asylums and put these people away. These people. Let's, let's talk about language. These people. That word asylum. I texted my wife at a stoplight, and I told her what I was listening to, and I had tears streaming down my face. I got home. I felt like I'd calmed down. I told her what was going on. And by that time, I was somewhat angry. I was feeling angry about it and saying, gee, I'm going to talk. I'm gonna, now I'm even more motivated to talk about this thing. Went to put my attache case down in my office, uh, and I found myself on my knees, and I was sobbing. I, the, the level of hurt and fear that I felt was very real. I was like, wow. Again, it goes back to that identifying with my tribe thing that I talked about before, that, hey, these are my people. Like, I don't want somebody talking about locking up folks like me. So the public discourse is important. We've had people be very careless with their language in our uh, in positions of leadership, uh, both uh, political and otherwise, uh, sometimes around the issues of mental illness. Your point is very well taken uh, because um, you know one of the uh, very influential people um, that I know that is on the front lines of uh, battling. Uh, the stigma of mental health illness is the uh, um, CEO, executive director of uh, Association of Mental Health and Wellness. Uh, Mr. Mike Stoltz, you know, he says, you know, there's no way we can go back to the dark ages of, of what used to be because it was horrific. And as a matter of fact, and as you know, and as history has uh, you know revealed to us, all these major institutions that are you know now thankfully um, being slowly phased out were all created because of that whole asylum mentality. Um, I don't know if a lot of people know the history of Kings Park, but Kings Park was an outshoot of a uh, Kings County Medical Center in Brooklyn. And when they the population of people who were diagnosed with mental illness got too great, they bought a sparse of land out here and they called it Kings Park. Kings Park is an offshoot of Kings County um, Hospital. And that's the, that was the mental um, extension of Kings County, uh, Pilgrim State, Central Islip, um, all of these places. uh they were just warehousing people that they didn't want to deal with. And, and we can never go back to that. Uh, so it's great that, you know, individuals like yourself and individuals like Michelle Williams and uh, Logic, uh, the rapper that made the positive um, 
uh, uh, rap song. I want to be alive and talked about suicide and how people get to that point. And I think if you continue to take your message out there and you encourage others and then, you know, people can say anybody can get to that point. You know, there's, there's no certain segment of people of the population that are subject to uh, being under so much stress and, and, and unbearable uh, tension and pressure that they they don't crack mentally. I mean, you know, life is very stressful and very challenging and it's OK to not have all the answers all the time. And so because you've been so gracious in coming out, you know, hopefully this is going to inspire other people to do the same and also for the public to kind of take a look at how we talk about this issue of mental illness, what we say and how we say it so that people don't feel like they have to cower in the shadows um, because it can be very uh, psychologically debilitating to feel like there's nowhere you can go and there's no one that you can talk to. So any closing thoughts you want to share with our listeners? Sure. Well, you touched on Kings Park and that is relevant. I mean, we're speaking here from the Long Island region of New York and we had the dubious distinction of having three huge institutions, as you correctly called them, warehouses, asylums, that was the old term for them, these mental institutions, uh, that operated up until the late 60s, mid-70s. Geraldo Rivera, I'm going to credit him for exposing, uh, through his Willowbrook documentary, some of the conditions that were going on back then. We in New York have passed some landmark legislation uh, to protect vulnerable populations, particularly folks with mental and physical disabilities, the Social Justice Center, I believe it's called. Um, in closing, I think you're right. Uh, we need more public dialogue. People need to feel safe talking to their own family members. There are people who've been ostracized by family, by friends, by employers because of having a mental illness. And my mission in talking to you today in speaking at different venues like colleges and nonprofit human service organizations is to, I want people to feel safe talking, saying they have an illness, asking for help, and I want them to primarily be treated with dignity when they ask for help, and finally, that there are the resources out there for them to get help in a timely fashion, not like, hey, it's great to hear from you, Frank, we'll see you in six weeks. And there are also... To speak to the whole suicide piece that you talked to, I think it's very important. There are suicide prevention classes. I have taken uh, both of them. One is called ASSIST, and the other one is called SAFE Talk. Both of those are very helpful. They're being offered here in our region and across the country and even internationally. And um, I think that that is something that folks who are interested can look into, and anybody can be a suicide prevention hero, if you will. So in addition to the resources that you mentioned, what are some other local community resources that you recommend to someone with mental illness and or someone who cares about them, whether it be spouse, family members, or, or friends? Well, you mentioned one, and I happen to know Michael Stoles. We've crossed paths professionally. The Association for Mental Health and Wellness is a leader uh, here in Long Island. Uh, we also have LICAD, Long Island um, Council Against Drug and uh, Alcohol Dependency, I believe. Um, the uh, Mental Health Association in Nassau County they put on some fantastic uh, trainings. I'm on a mailing list there. NAMI, National Alliance of Mental Illness. They have got chapters in every state 
every county. There are support groups out there. There are resources out there. The CDC has things out there. School personnel can look at things. I think like many other public health issues, early intervention is one of the next places we have to go to. Thank you for all that information. And uh, again, we'd like to thank our guest for today, who's been Mr. Frank Pomata, who courageously has chosen to come out of the shadows uh, to share his experience. And we'd like to commend you, Mr. Pomata, for all that you've done. Um, and thank you all for listening and stay tuned for more episodes. We'll be doing some follow up. You've been listening to the Kelso on the Air Social Work Podcast. This is your host, Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. To replay this program, log on to SoundCloud.com and type Kelson on the air into the search window. Thank you for tuning in. This has been a Kelson Communications production.